Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Welcome to Walt Disney Part 2. On the last episode, we covered Walt's childhood, his rise as an animator, and the founding of his first few companies. To recap where we had left off, Walt Disney had just taken a business trip to New York, where he had hoped to renegotiate the deal for his very popular Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoon, and instead he came away finding out that his distributor, Mintz, had hired out all his animators, owned his intellectual property, and basically took the company out from under Walt. On the train ride back, Walt comes up with this idea for a plucky little mouse who eventually becomes Mickey Mouse, who we all know today. So we'll pick up from there, we'll cover the rest of his life and his many achievements. And look, I just wanted to reemphasize why we're talking about Walt Disney. It's more than just that he's a great businessman, or that he got wealthy, or because of the company he founded. More than any other person on earth, he is responsible for popular culture over the last 75 years. If you just look at the company today, they're responsible for so much of culture, of storytelling, of not just movies, but TV, entertainment, theme parks. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. Even though much of that comes from companies that have since been acquired, such as Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, all of these brands still adhere to the conventions that Walt Disney set up. His style of telling stories, his optimism, his hero's journey. And not only that, but the business models that he set up to inform the modern media landscape. So in many ways, the world that we live in is Walt Disney's world. He created it all those years ago. The other thing I'll say is this. Some stories are great because of who the person was not. You read about someone like Einstein, and many people are inclined to say, well, I just don't have an IQ that high. I'm just not that intelligent. I don't have the raw brain power to do what he did. I feel that way. Uh, and that's true of most people, right? Most of us just don't have the pure intellectual ability that Einstein had. Or you might look at LeBron James and say, wow, you know, there's an exceptional athlete. I just don't have the body to do what he did. I could, I could try my hardest every second of every day of my life, and I would still not be as fast as strong as LeBron James. Walt Disney is the opposite of that. He had so, so many glaring flaws, missteps, weaknesses, whatever you want to call them. And he had even more areas in which he was just okay. He was kind of mediocre. And so to have someone on the one hand who I just said defined mass culture for the last 75 years, and then on the other hand, you can say that he's someone who maybe wasn't that impressive just based on his inherent traits. Well, then that kind of tells you that maybe he has one or two secrets that you can learn from him that unlocked all this value for him that enabled him to have this exceptional impact on the world. So let's see what those secrets were. But before we jump into it, a few housekeeping items. If you haven't, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We now have 362 five-star reviews on Spotify. So thank you so much to all of you who have gone and done that. And also before we get into it, a special shout out to Elizabeth Graver, who has been indispensable in researching and consulting to help me create this Walt Disney series. And lastly, before we dive in, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Have you ever heard the urban legend that Walt Disney was cryogenically frozen? It's not true, but it was a pretty common urban legend, at least back when I was in elementary and middle school. They would say that he was frozen with the hope that future advances in medical technology would allow him to be resuscitated and resurrected someday. Well, again, this never happened, but while Walt Disney never froze his body, you should be freezing yours. And that's because cold exposure and cold baths specifically have been shown to have a number of positive health benefits. It's good for your hair and skin, good for your mood and concentration. It keeps you sharp. I love taking cold baths. And that's why I am proud to partner with Cold Plunge. The Cold Plunge has cooling technology that gives you ice bath levels of cold without all the hassle. And with their filtration and sanitation technology, it makes the experience far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. You can fill your Cold Plunge with a hose, set your temperature, and you're off. It couldn't be easier. So check them out at thecoldplunge.com and use code BENWILSON to get $150 off. Once again, that is thecoldplunge.com and use my name as the code B-E-N-W-I-L-S-O-N for $150 off. So as I mentioned in the previous episode, Walt was a very optimistic person. He had a very buoyant personality and seemed to pop right back up 
whenever anything went wrong. But he was really bent out of shape by the takeover for Mintz. The Disney head animator of iWorks later said that this was, quote, one of the absolute low points in Walt's life. Usually Walt was very enthusiastic and bubbling and bouncing no matter what happened, but he had met a stone wall in the East. Ub would also tell a different story from the very cinematic version of Mickey's origin story that we got from Walt. You know, it's almost too good to be true. He's coming back from the big disappointment and has this flash of brilliance and Mickey comes fully formed into his mind. Well, according to Ub, Walt came back with a few ideas, which he, Roy, and Walt batted around and workshopped, and Mickey eventually came out of their brainstorm sessions. And I do have to say, that sounds more likely. Walt drew some of the initial prototypes of Mickey, but they weren't that good. It was Ub who sketched what would become the first recognizable form of Mickey Mouse. Um, but everyone would later come to say, including Ub, that Mickey really was Walt's creation. He came up with the concept, he came up with the personality, and he gave Mickey his soul. So they've come up with this idea for Mickey Mouse, and they want to start creating animations. But the only people they have to work on this are Walt, Roy, and three animators, including Ub. And awkwardly, they're still trapped in the same building as the other animators who had betrayed them and gone to work with Mintz. And they had stuck around for a little while to fulfill their contracts on the animations that the studio had already begun. So you've got this weird divided studio where you get the faithful animators who are just a few in number on one side and then these traitors on the other side and so the few faithful animators would literally work on mickey in secret behind a black curtain in the back so that the the traders couldn't see what was going on and couldn't steal their idea so they have the situation where all the animators including the traders are working during the day and then the faithful animators who are going to stay with disney stay late into the night and to continue to work on Mickey in the little free time that they had. The first Mickey Mouse animated short they made is called Plain Crazy and it's pretty good. They show it to test audiences and people like it. They show it to distributors who might distribute the cartoon and they like it but all of them decline to take it probably because they're a little spooked by Walt's recent falling out with Mintz and the fact that all his animators were soon to be leaving and they're a little worried that, okay, you've got this legal dispute. And they're a little worried that, okay, you've got this big dispute with Mintz. Um, is that going to be a problem later on? Do we want to work with you? It just kind of seemed like things were up in the air. So he's got this Mickey Mouse cartoon, but no one will pick it up and he can't get it in theaters. At one of these screenings, Walt can tell that the distributors are getting ready to reject him once again. You know, this is like the 10th time at this point. And he's panicking a little bit. And he just thinks, man, we can't get rejected again. And so he blurts out, we're going to make it with sound. And the executives take that in and say, well, that sounds interesting. At, to this point, animations were not made with sound. They were all silent cartoons. So they say, get back to us when you actually do that, when you make a Mickey Mouse with sound. People were somewhat skeptical of the idea of a cartoon with sound. This is the time when film is starting to transition from silent films into movies that we know today with sound. And the problem is, as you transition to sound, you kind of go through this uncanny valley where if you've got sound, but it's not perfect, it doesn't match up perfectly, it doesn't synchronize perfectly, then it just seems off, right? The, the sound almost detracts from the entire experience because you're just thinking about, oh, that doesn't really go with the image that I'm seeing. And it was even worse with cartoons. People didn't really get it why they would have sound at this point. Uh, one executive said, quote, drawings are not vocal. Why should a voice come out of a cartoon character? And look, people hadn't quite nailed it yet. There were all these technical challenges to overcome. Uh, again, if the sound was off even a fraction of a second, uh, it would ruin the entire effect. And getting the sound and the animation completely synced up was a huge technical hurdle. I think we now take it for granted but at the time, it was extremely, extremely difficult. But Walt is convinced that he can figure it out. He's not too worried about the technical hurdles. And you might think that his team would be frustrated by this. They're already working late into the night to create these Mickey Mouse cartoons, and now Walt has signed them up to figure out how to make them with sound. <laughs> and this isn't just more work, but he's literally signing them up to figure out something that no one has figured out before. But they're not mad. Uh, he's got this small, tight-knit group of guys who love animation, and when they hear that Walt wanted to do a sound animation, they're actually energized. They love the idea and are excited to try and tackle this new problem and to innovate, figure out something new. 
Walt and his group start fooling around with sound and testing out ideas when one of the young animators, a guy named Les Clark, develops an ingenious method for syncing up the recorded sound and the animation frame by frame. It worked like a charm. It was astoundingly innovative. So that works and that gets them on the right track. But there's another problem early on, which is while they had figured out how to sync up the sound effects, they had not yet thought through how to sync up the music. And so they didn't think that would be as difficult. Walt goes out to New York where this new executive who'd been helping them out, a guy by the name of Pat Powers, had arranged for a symphony to record music for their new Mickey Mouse cartoon. And it was a total fiasco. They couldn't get the symphony to stay exactly on beat. And so they waste an afternoon of recording time with this symphony. And so that's bad. They have no music. They need good music. They need this cartoon, frankly, to be a smash hit. In part because Walt is an incurable perfectionist and everything had to be perfect for him. But also because the entire company was riding on this sound cartoon, which they were now calling Steamboat Willie. And if it wasn't good, there wasn't going to be any more Disney company after it was done. It had to succeed. And it's not even done yet. And now they're out of money because they just burned through money recording with a symphony to get sound that doesn't even work. And so what do you do in this situation? Um, You're out of money. You're up to your neck in debt. This cartoon needs to succeed. And you don't even have the money to make it succeed. You you can't just hire the symphony again. You're, you're out. Again, you are up to your neck in debt. You're kind of leveraged out. Well, I'll tell you what Walt did. He sold his car. And this wasn't even a hard decision for him. He didn't agonize about it. He's in New York still recording, and he wires to Roy, you know, sell the car and put the money into the business so that we can get this this symphony recorded. And the car doesn't completely cover the cost, but his brother Roy is able to get just eke out a little bit more in emergency loans. And luckily things work out the second go round with the recording symphony. Um, Walt wasn't much of an engineer, but he's actually the one who comes up with a solution of synchronizing a clack on the audio recording with a bouncing ball on the film, and this allows the symphony to stay on exact time with the animation. And so Walt saves the day, and the second recording goes well for Steamboat Willie's soundtrack. So miraculously, after the first couple silent Mickey Mouse animations had not sold, they are able to develop Steamboat Willie, the world's first successful sound animation. You can go look it up on YouTube, and it honestly holds up pretty well. I just looked it up again, and it made me laugh out loud. It's not high art, it's not, you know, great dramatic storytelling, but the gags are pretty funny, and it's it's easy to sit through. If you watch an old silent film from this era, from like 1927, 1928, uh, most of them are so boring to our modern eyes that they're completely unwatchable, at least to me. I know there are people out there who like silent films, but it's an acquired taste. Like, it's, it's pretty tough for modern attention spans, but not... Steamboat Willie. That, that's not true at all. If you look it up on YouTube, it's honestly easy to just sit there and watch it. And I think that tells you something about the, the timelessness of the storytelling in it. They test screen Steamboat Willie for a live audience, and the audience goes berserk. They love it. They, they are head over heels. iWorks later said, quote, I never saw such a reaction in an audience in my life. The scheme worked perfectly. The sound itself gave the illusion of something emanating directly from the screen. There's a great moment at this screening. The audience is so enthusiastic that they screen Steamboat Willie again, and then again, and again, and again. And in fact, they start going late into the night showing people this animation. Two of the animators who've been working on this film for months finally get tired of this and step outside the theater and start chatting with each other. And Walt storms out and starts yelling at them. And he says, quote, you're out here talking about babies and we're in here making history. And I was really struck by that passage because to me, it sounds so much like Steve Jobs, especially his famous quote to John Scully, the the CEO that he recruited when he said, do you want to sell sugar water or do you want to put a dent in the universe? And I think it captures this common obsession that Steve Jobs and Walt Disney had with changing history, with making a difference. And there are actually a lot of similarities between the two of them, like scary, almost eerie similarities between Steve Jobs and Walt Disney. Um, I actually think they're two of the figures that are most directly comparable that I've ever talked about. Um, I think I'll get more into that in the end notes episode, but just remember that for later, that, that there are some similarities between them that are, that are almost spooky. So there's this new executive, Pat Powers, who Walt has been working with, and he helps Disney get 
a state-by-state distribution deal. So Steamboat Willie sees the light of day as the first Mickey Mouse cartoon ever to play in theaters. It's an immediate success. It's a sensation. Crowds love Steamboat Willie and they love Mickey Mouse. Over the next two years, Disney and his animators would continue to pump out Mickey Mouse cartoons and a new series of sound animated shorts called the Silly Symphonies. And so this is the first time in his life that Walt is experiencing huge sustained success. Uh, This is the late 1920s, so basically from 1928 to 1930, Mickey Mouse is becoming a phenomenon for the first time. The Queen of England is requesting to have Mickey Mouse cartoons screened at Buckingham Palace. People are lining up to see Mickey Mouse cartoons. And, you know, these are just short seven-minute cartoons that play before a feature film. But some theaters start playing the cartoons back-to-back and basically making feature films out of compiled uh, short Mickey Mouse cartoons. People are calling ahead to theaters to make sure that they're going to be playing a Mickey Mouse in front of the movie before they go. So, you know, Disney is becoming famous and very successful. But for all this, Walt and Roy are still not rich. They're not actually wealthy, wealthy. And for one thing, Walt couldn't bring himself to get rich. Every cent that he got, he poured back into the company to make better and better animations. So he's hiring more animators. He's making the animations more elaborate, more lifelike, more realistic. Um, They adopt this progressive new Technicolor cinematography start making color cartoons, and this looks great, but it's much more expensive than the cartoons they had been making. And his brother Roy, who's managing the money, is just completely exasperated by this. Roy says, quote, we've got to quit spending money on these films or we're going to go broke. Walt continually and without letting up in the least always strives for something that has not been done. That sort of policy, of course, is always costly. Okay, so you can just see this, this pull between Walt who just has this love of doing something that's never been done before. And is always pushing for that. Doesn't care what it costs. And Roy, who says, can we make a profit for once in our gosh dang lives? But it's not just the innovation that's costing them. Walt had signed a pretty bad deal with this executive Pat Powers that gave Pat a disproportionate share of the income. And not only was Pat entitled to a disproportionate share of the income because of his bad deal, but... He was refusing to open up the books. So the Disney's start to suspect, okay, he already doesn't owe us that much money. And we're not sure that he's actually paying us what he owes. And and after a while of him refusing to open up the books, it becomes increasingly clear that, okay, this guy is shorting us money. So they have a big falling out with Pat Powers. In a scene that is eerily reminiscent of his falling out with Mintz, Powers tries to steal the company from Disney. He hires away his animators, this time including even Ub Iwerks. And for this guy, Pat Powers, his reasoning was uh, probably pretty similar to Mince's. His reasoning was, look, I'm the one who makes all the business decisions. I'm the one who distributes these things. I'm the sales guy. I actually find paying customers, theaters to acquire these cartoons. Ub Iwerks is the man who actually draws Mickey Mouse. So why am I paying all this money to Walt Disney? I got the guy who draws the thing. I'm the one who sells it. That's a business. So he steals iWorks, though this time there isn't as big of a mass exodus from the Disney company, but he does steal iWorks and a few other animators. And this really hurt Walt. Ub iWorks had been a really faithful friend. He'd been with him the whole way. And Walt couldn't believe that he'd betray him like this. But Ub was tired of being in Walt's shadow. He felt a little bit like Pat Powers did. Um, And I think it's a little understandable. Think of how you must feel as the guy who actually draws Mickey Mouse. In meanwhile, the only name that anyone knows is Walt Disney. Well, as would quickly become clear, Walt might not have been the actual animator, but he was the magic that made it all work. Because iWorks and Power's new company would not come anywhere close to matching Disney and Mickey Mouse in popularity. And to me, this is eerily reminiscent of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. You know, Steve Wozniak was the technical genius behind the original Apple. He was the guy that built the Apple I and the Apple II. And so when Apple got a new CEO, they figured that Steve Jobs was dispensable. Heck, we've got an actual engineer who built this stuff. So what are we paying Steve Jobs for? And that's what Pat Powers thought. But in both cases, the leader succeeded where the technical genius did not. There's a scene in the Steve Jobs movie by Aaron Sorkin 
where Steve Wozniak asks Steve Jobs, you can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. So how come I read 10 times a day, Steve Jobs is a genius? What do you do? And Steve Jobs responds, I play the orchestra. And you're a good musician. You sit right there. You're the best in your row. But I play the orchestra. And what I found really fascinating is that Steve Jobs never said that. It's a fictional movie. But Walt Disney did say that. Walt Disney explicitly made that comparison when someone asked him what he did. He compared his animators to musicians. And he said, I'm like a conductor. I play the symphony. He made that exact analogy. And I don't know if Aaron Sorkin was doing that on purpose. I suspect not. But to me, it's, um, it's one of the more of those eerie comparisons. And the fact that Walt Disney went on to change the world and of iWorks did not, and the fact that Steve Jobs went on to change the world and Steve Wozniak did not, just goes to show that leadership is always the most indispensable thing. Or even if you want to narrow it down from leadership, I would say vision. It isn't the engineers that make the world go round, though of course, they're very important, but it's the visionaries. And I think that's one of the most important lessons you can take from the life of Walt Disney. Nevertheless, of course, Walt doesn't know all this at the time. All he knows is that his head animator is being poached, as well as a few more of his key animators. And um, he's devastated. It's an emotional betrayal for him. And shortly after, Walt's wife has a miscarriage. And the stress of that disappointment added to losing iWorks and the pressure of work become too much. And Walt has a mental breakdown. 1931 is one of the darkest episodes of his life. And so he decides, I just need to get away. I need to rest. I need to recuperate. And so he goes on vacation to Panama and Cuba with his wife. And he takes three months to just recharge. He disconnects from work completely for three months. It proves extraordinarily beneficial for him. And he comes back energized. And the years that followed this vacation would be some of the most successful and most productive of his life. So, you know, sometimes this works. Sometimes you really do just need to take some time for yourself and, uh, and recover your energy. In 1932, Walt wins his first Oscar for a short cartoon called Flowers and Trees. And in 1933, he wins a second Oscar for a film called The Three Little Pigs. Three Little Pigs is a massive, massive success. It's a musical and the music is a big hit. And it's their first cartoon that has a meaningful story. Cartoons at the time were really just a series of jokes, a series of gags. Three Little Pigs was one of the first cartoons that has not just jokes, although it did have that, but it had a compelling storyline and characters that you can actually follow and identify with a little bit. Well, Walt is addicted to the success and fame that come with Three Little Pigs, and in 1934, he decides that they are going to go all in on creating animations that have an actual story. And what they're going to do is create a feature film. All these films up until now are still just short films that come at the front of a feature, of a, of a full-length film. And Walt wants to create his own animated feature film. This is very ambitious. No one's tried it before. So in 1934, they have about 200 employees and they start working on Snow White. That's going to be their first animated feature film. And this is another interesting comparison between Walt and Steve Jobs to me. They always wanted to move on to the next thing rather than revel in accomplishment. They both abandoned these incredible creations that made them famous. So for Steve Jobs, that was the Apple II. And before long, Steve is done with the Apple II and just wants to work on the Macintosh because that's what is cool and new and innovative. Similarly, in 1934 and 1935, Walt is just done with Mickey Mouse. This character that made him famous, that made him a name, is really suffering. He's getting stale. People don't engage with Mickey as much anymore. And Walt just can't be bothered. <laughs> he doesn't care. He's, he says, great, I love Mickey Mouse. He's a great character. But animated shorts are a thing of the past. The future is feature-length films. The future is Snow White. And um, just like Steve Jobs, he would do this over and over again. He would focus on the future and innovation. And both of them had no sentimentality whatsoever for what brought them there. No patience for working on things that were not at the absolute cutting edge. So throughout the 1930s, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and other shorts are doing just okay. But it's Snow White that is taking not only all of Walt's time, but the majority of the studio's time. It's all hands on deck for Snow White. Throughout all this, the company is taking huge loans from Bank of America to fund this endeavor. The number of employees balloons to over 500. 
And uh, Walt predicted that making the movie would cost $250,000. So that's the amount they borrow. But the next year, they have to borrow $650,000. And the year after, another $650,000. So after borrowing more than five times what Walt originally thought it would cost, they boldly ask for another $327,000. And finally, Bank of America sends a representative down there, a guy named Rosenberg, to see what the heck is going on and if they're ever going to get all their money back. And you can understand why they're finally freaking out. They're approaching it costing 10 times what Walt had originally predicted. And keep in mind, uh, Snow White was innovative not just because it was the first full-length animated feature film, but also because of the animation techniques. I mean, this is just a better-looking cartoon than anyone has ever created before and a more complex story, both from a storytelling perspective and also from an animation perspective. All these different characters interacting with one another, interacting with their environment around them. It is completely unlike anything that anyone has ever seen before. So Rosenberg goes down and sees an early screening and um, it's still early. Not all the scenes are done. Some of them are just sketches. And Rosenberg is this sort of introverted, steely character um, very sort of classic accounting brain banker type. And he watches this early cut of Snow White in complete silence. And when it's over, he doesn't say a word. He just walks out to his car. And uh, naturally, Walt sort of starts panicking and chases him down and is talking to him and explaining how it's really going to flow much better when we finish. And Rosenberg still isn't saying a thing and finally gets to his car. And right before he drives off, he turns to Walt and says, that thing is going to make you a hatful of money. And then he takes off. And uh, they never had to worry about money after that. The Disney company told Bank of America how much money they needed, and Bank of America signed the checks. It was a great relationship between the two of them. And, and uh, Rosenberg you know, said he had no concerns that this thing was going to make back all the money that they had put into it and more. And so that's good, because they would need to keep going back and asking for more and more money. Because it's not just expensive, it's taking forever. And one of the reasons that the movie is taking forever is that Walt is a horrible perfectionist. And I mean, it's like a condition. He can't sign off on anything that is not just completely perfect in every way. And this would drive the animators crazy because at this point, Walt is no longer an active animator. He's not doing any of the drawings himself. He's not technical. And just like Steve Jobs, he can't always pinpoint how to solve what he doesn't like. But that doesn't stop him from insisting that they go back and get it right. And so you can just imagine how exasperating that is working for someone who's saying, no, this isn't quite right. I can't tell you exactly what you need to do to make it right, but I know it needs to be better. It's very frustrating, but it does push these animators to new heights, to do things that they had not imagined were even possible to do. And so by the end, they're trying to hit this release date of December 21st, 1937. It's like, you know, not the first release date they've set by a long shot. But at a certain point, Walt does acknowledge, okay, well, we do just have to release the dang thing, even if not everything is going to seem perfect to me. So they're literally working 24-7. They have animators working in eight-hour shifts for 24 hours a day so that some of them can fill in animations done by other animators earlier. And this is all necessary because Walt Disney has slowed them down so much with his perfectionist ways. Well, by the end, Walt is forced to make some concessions and is pressed to okay some things that he doesn't love, much to his chagrin. But... They're able to have it ready by the release date of December 21st, 1937. By the end, it has taken years longer than they anticipated, and the cost has spiraled from $250,000 to more than $1.5 million. And so the pressure's on. This thing has to be a hit. If this isn't a hit, I mean, Walt Disney Company is more than sunk. Walt is sunk. Roy is sunk. They're going to be in debt for the rest of their lives. <laughs> this is it. Everything is hanging on Snow White. And so they show up to the premiere. Their hopes are high, but obviously they're nervous. And the audience response is, I, I'm not even sure what words to use. Ecstatic, rapturous. The audience loses it. It's so good and so ahead of its time that they're breaking out into spontaneous applause multiple times throughout the movie. They're applauding scenes where nothing happens. They're just so amazed by the technical brilliance of the animation. And it truly is one of the most ahead of its time things that you can find. Uh, you know, it's funny. Go back and watch Snow White. It's still good. It really is. In fact, 
it's levels of technical brilliance that I would say that Disney animations like kind of fall back from. You you can't find like a movie that's comparably good in terms of its animation, even from the Disney company, for multiple decades. I mean, it's not until like the '80s that they kind of, or maybe even the '90s that they're able to go back and match it. So, um, yeah, to say that it's mind blowing is kind of an understatement. It's immediately the biggest hit the world has ever seen. Um, they were panicked about spending a million and a half on it. Well, the movie makes more than six million dollars in the first six months making it the highest grossing feature film ever to have come out at that time. Not the top animated film, the top feature film. So that includes live action. Theaters have to take reservations three weeks in advance. And it's not just the US, the movie is a global phenomenon, especially in Europe. And I think it's tough to wrap our heads around because there are so many movies and TV shows. It's probably the most culturally significant movie of all time. I mean, everyone saw it. Can you imagine now a movie coming out that was so popular that you can't see it for three weeks you you like any time of day to see a wednesday matinee you have to book three weeks in advance that that's what snow white was it wins an academy award and launches walt into a new stratosphere of fame he's now a household name across most of the developed world the success of snow white transforms not just walt's life but it transforms disney studios they open a new office on a street called Hyperion, and this studio is awesome. It's like Google 60 years before Google Campus would become a thing. Um, and, and actually, it is similar in many ways. It was beautifully designed with multicolored bricks and different types of woods to give it a friendly feel. It had beautiful grounds with plenty of trees and paths and walkways. There was a gym, a barbershop, ping pong tables. I told you it was just like Google. Softball fields. And there's even one perk that's better than anything that you can find today. Um, it is the greatest company perk of all time, as far as I'm concerned, the granddaddy of them all, the thing that would single-handedly get me to work for any company if they offered it. And, and that perk is you could sunbathe nude on the roof of Disney Studios. Amazing. What a perk. Can you imagine? And uh, it's not just the perks, but you know, in this kind of afterglow of Snow White, people are just so excited to come work for Disney because this is where everything is happening. This is where innovation is happening um, in art and media and, of course, in animation and film. But I do have to say that this time period, the, the late 1930s, early 1940s, uh, working for Disney Studios in particular, would be one of the most incredible times to live, both because it's at the cutting edge of animation. You'd see some incredible things being made, but also because it's just such an amazing comfortable cool place to live los angeles is still booming and growing it's not choked with traffic yet people can afford these big beautiful houses the weather is perfect hollywood is just taking off the united states is quickly becoming a superpower car ownership is also taking off is becoming ubiquitous for the first time in history so people are loving driving these new cars around and it was just a time period when it must have felt like anything was possible you're living on the frontier literally of the world you know hollywood is still a boom town and you're living on the frontier of what is possible with this new animation and that feeling was reflected in the work culture at the time if you believe the accounts it was like a giant frat party everyone was playing practical jokes day drinking hooking up playing games having a good time but it wasn't just the play that made it a great environment disney was really big on education and learning the craft of animation so he's bringing in expert animators who are teaching new techniques and teaching people how to perfect their craft. And by the way, this is what great innovative environments usually look like. Um, they are these super fratty, competitive, fun, work hard, play hard environments with, with lots of practical joking. And so unsurprisingly, um, these, these studios, these Disney studios become the mecca of animation in the world at the time. Serious competitors and challengers would come later, but for now, Disney Studios was the place to be if you were a great animator by a mile. wasn't close. And so you might think, okay, great, nothing but skyrocketing success for Walt from there on out, but that's not how things played out. Disney's next two films, Pinocchio and Fantasia, are not big successes. Part of this is the fact that World War II was now kicking off in Europe, and that basically wiped out any ticket sales there, which was a huge blow. Pinocchio was also just not a critical success. It wasn't a huge critical failure. 
critics didn't hate it, but it failed to live up to the standards that had been set by Snow White. Fantasia had more mixed reviews. Some people loved it, some people hated it. I actually grew up watching it. It's a really weird film, uh, but really cool in some ways. It's actually probably Disney's most ambitious film, and I love it for that movie. It's not really a movie with a plot. It's a series of cartoons set to famous classical musical pieces, and um, I don't know. It's innovative. It's You can see, you know, here's Walt taking a big swing, but cool or not, it did not make a lot of money. So between Pinocchio and Fantasia, the Disney company is back in financial difficulty, even despite all the success that Snow White had. And this leads to belt tightening. This leads to pay cuts and layoffs. And at the same time that you've got these layoffs, there was some resentment simmering over the culture at the Disney company. Now, I know I just described it as one of the greatest places to work in human history, but the truth is that that didn't last long. Disney reaches its creative, fun, fraternal apex around 1940. Around that time, Walt is understandably trying to standardize the process for making these films so that they can pump out more great animations. And he's trying to make multiple films at once. So he's got over a thousand employees and he himself is no longer a frat boy. He's 39 years old now with two daughters. But the result is that this fraternity quickly becomes a factory line. And you need to figure out where you plug into this factory line and play your part. And that change in the work environment ruffled some feathers. And this all sort of mixes together and, and comes and forms a horrible labor dispute. There's a, a strike by Disney animators who are upset about the work environment, upset about the pay cuts and all these layoffs. And they form a picket line, which goes on for five weeks. And in the end, the National Labor Relations Board, which is the United States government body that handles labor disputes, they, they get involved and they force Walt into a resolution that's a compromise between him and the labor leader. The company had 1,200 employees before the labor dispute and comes out with only 694. And some of those firings were legitimately needed. They were cost-cutting measures in the face of financial headwinds, but many of them were obviously recriminations for striking. And uh, this whole labor dispute really wounds Walt. It, it not just wounds him, it, it enrages him, makes him mad. Many of his employees say that this strike changed him. He became more uh, churlish, more angry, more distant, less cheery and optimistic. And after this, he could be vindictive uh, against those who crossed him. And part of the reason for this is that Walt did not believe that the other side was negotiating in good faith. He blamed it all on communist infiltrators. He literally said, quote, we never had any troubles until the commies moved in. And his brother Roy shared the sentiment. His brother Roy said, quote, money was never the basic problem in this thing as much as communism. It's easy to roll our eyes and project backwards our current attitudes and uh, the current balance of power. But at the time, the United States is still in the Great Depression. People are really poor and disillusioned with capitalism. And there really was a really strong communist presence in the United States. And they really did provide a lot of the energy and the material support behind the labor movement in the 1930s and 40s. And certainly in retrospect, Walt and Roy were correct that many of the chief organizers and agitators did have connections to communist parties and organizations. But where they went wrong is they were wrong to dismiss the concerns as simply communist troublemaking. There's a reason they found an audience with Disney employees, and it's because there were real grievances about the way that things were being handled and about the work environment. But communist influence or not, the labor dispute in many ways ruined the animation business for Walt. He loved for things to be perfect. And then after something so ugly and difficult as this labor dispute, his animation studio couldn't be perfect for him anymore. So it was really difficult for him to re-engage and be as involved as he was before. So the next two Disney films come out in 1941 and 42, they're Dumbo and Bambi, respectively. But then for the rest of the 1940s, Walt slows down production on feature-length animation films. Instead, he focuses on the thing that everyone is focused on right now, which is World War II. The United States had entered the war, and there weren't many people around to go watch movies. What there was a lot of need for were films that could be shown to um, soldiers in order to educate them. Educate them both about the war effort, you know, propaganda films, but also basic educational films about um, what they would be doing, how to work the equipment and machinery they'd be working with, how to deploy, how to work in a unit, things like that. 
And so Walt starts taking a bunch of these contracts and starts making films for the United States military. And so that's, you know, that's what Walt is doing for basically all the 1940s. He's working on these government contracts and and he's having a life <laughs> kind of for the first time in his life. You know, he's, he picks up polo as a sport. He's going to more social events. You can tell that he's just not as passionate about the Disney company as, uh, as he once was. The one feature length film that they are working on throughout the 1940s is Cinderella. You know, as I said, Walt's growing distant from the production process. He's clearly disinterested, and so he's not as involved in producing Cinderella. Um, but ironically, Cinderella, which comes out in 1950, is their first major success in a while. It's totally beloved and does really well, and actually kind of saves the studio financially. And the studio makes a comeback in the 1950s. The next few films all do well for Disney. Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and a couple live-action features called Robin Hood and His Merry Men and Treasure Island. But again, this is like kind of having a, a weird disassociative effect on Disney. It, it's, it's kind of tough for him to see the studio succeed without his involvement. And the films are doing well, but Disney Studios is no longer the cutting edge place of innovation in the industry. This is the time when Looney Tunes is really taking off um, and, and all these animations out of Warner Brothers. So it's not like they don't have competition it's just that Walt can't be bothered to re-engage in animation. So what is he doing? I mean, I just mentioned that he's getting more of a social life, but this is where things start to get weird because he starts to go off into truly cuckoo crazy territory. He becomes nostalgically obsessed with trains, particularly model trains. Now, I know that model trains are a hobby and um, a lot of people have a big passion for them, but Walt has a multi-million dollar business to run, which he's basically not doing. And he just gets completely sucked into playing with toy trains for multiple hours a day. In fact, in 1948, Walt sells his house and buys a new one specifically so that he can build a miniature train track in his backyard. Um, think about a train that's about knee high. So it's just big enough that Walt can sit on top of the train and ride around the backyard. He converts a shed into a toy train factory. He's got a lathe and a drill. And he's moved on from just building trains and tracks to building whole towns around his trains and train stations. And then he starts taking his hobby to work. And pretty soon, he's taken over a wing of the actual Disney Studios to experiment with building these toy trains and toy train towns that he's building around the stations. And he's got people now on the payroll at Disney Studios who are helping him to design and build these little towns. And they're getting more and more elaborate with wind-up toys and mechanical innovations to make the villages move and come to life. They've got furniture and boats and fake lakes. And he's building entire warehouses of little fake villages with fake trains going throughout them. And so, yeah, people start to fear that he's going, you know, crazy. <laughs> and at Disney Studios, they're kind of keeping this under wraps. I mean, it's not a total secret, but they're definitely not going out of their way to let people know about Crazy Uncle Walt's million dollar toy train village in the East Wing. So Disney's doing this just because he wants to. He's following his passion. It's interesting to him. Uh, he's got an obsession with it. He's addicted to it. Like I said, all these great men have addictions. This is his addiction of the moment, these toy trains. But it doesn't stay a pointless hobby for long. As you might have guessed, at some point, Walt Disney starts to give his main village a name. And that name is Disneylandia. And it's not long before it gets shortened to Disneyland. Then he starts telling people, you know, I want to take this bigger. I want to make this life-sized. He starts telling people, I want to build a park. Literally a park is the initial idea he has. Seven acres, picturesque, with all this sort of amazing stuff on it. But as he keeps working on the idea, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he's telling people that he's going to build an entire city. Amusement parks already existed with roller coasters and games and many of the features of a modern amusement park. But Walt is talking about something different. He's talking about the world's first theme park, an immersive experience, a whole park built around trying to transport you into a different world, giving you the feeling of being in a different world. And uh, so he's telling people about this, you know, I'm, I'm taking what I'm doing with these trains and I'm going to make it life-size and it's going to be this park where you're going to be transported into a different world. Um, and people can't tell what he's talking about. <laughs> they just like, they can't envision what he's trying to say to them. And if you've ever been to Disneyland, 
you'll understand some of how this actually played out. But imagine it's 1950 and Walt Disney is telling you about this new thing. Let's say you're Walt's age, old enough to have fought in World War I. So your parents grew up without a car, grew up riding a horse and carriage around. You've seen an enormous amount of change in your life. But this guy is talking about building a fake town for people to explore with a canal and a boat and a submarine and a mock-up spaceship. And that's what Walt was already talking about. So, you know, you're going to kind of go, what? Like, <laughs> I didn't have a car for the first 30 years of my life. Like, for the first 30 years of my life, I rode around on a horse, in a horse and buggy. I mean, that's, or, or maybe on a trolley. Like, that's what most of these people are used to. And now Walt is talking to them about a, a fake town with a mock-up spaceship in it. So Walt just starts ignoring anyone who can't understand the vision. Anyone who doesn't get on board, sorry, I don't have time for you. And so where he had become unfocused, slow, unmotivated, as animation slowed down in the 1940s, um, in the 1950s, as he gets passionate about Disneyland, he comes firing back. He's engaged, he's working hard, he's obsessed. He, he's doing this day and night, and he, he can see the future, he can see the vision, and no one's going to stop him. And his, his closest associates are trying to get on board, even though they don't get what's going on. There's a good quote from his brother, Roy, who says, quote, I don't see it clearly yet, but I do think the idea should be considered and studied on its merits. The whole idea to me has great possibilities. So in other words, I don't really know what you're talking about, but it sounds like it has lots of potential and I trust you, Walt. And you know, Walt, <laughs> he just has this attitude of like, all right, well, if no one else gets it, get out of the way. Uh, one day he walks onto the animation floor, grabs one of the animators and tells him, quote, I want you to work on Disneyland and you're going to like it. <laughs> and uh, this is just his attitude uh, throughout, throughout the 1950s. So in 1951, Walt goes back to the formula that worked for him before. He gets a small team of committed geniuses and visionaries and they work very closely together with maniacal focus and they're working on Disneyland. And it's just the greatest thing in the world to Walt. He would later say, quote, damn it, I love it here. It's just like the studio used to be in the years when we were always working on something new. And I think that was the key for Walt. He always wanted to be working on something new. And so animation got stale to him after a while, but now he's working on something new and he's passionate again. Walt acquires the money to do Disneyland by signing a TV deal with ABC for a show called, appropriately, Disneyland. And this is very early days for TV no one really knows what they're doing, so it's kind of a weird show in retrospect, but it's a massive success, and it helps him raise all the funds that he'll need for Disneyland. Walt comes up with five different lands that would make up the park. Main Street USA, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. He brings in different advisors who had run other amusement parks, and they all say the same thing. Don't do this. <laughs> they, were, they were convinced that this was going to be a disaster, Amusement parks actually had been a big deal earlier in the history of the United States, but they were a dying business. Their peak had been 20 or 30 years before, and the industry had been declining ever since. So all these experts are saying this is bad business, but Walt is, of course, convinced that this will be different and presses on ahead. On July 12, 1954, they break ground on Disneyland, and Walt has given himself a self-imposed deadline of one year to finish it. I mean... <laughs> Can you imagine that? That blows my mind. He thinks he's going to finish it in just one year. He thinks he can build an entire mock town in like a fifth of the time that it took him to animate Snow White. And, you know, this is going to be a huge challenge for Walt because he is famous for blowing through his deadlines. But this time he actually manages to keep it. Um, but what he blows through instead is his budget. They budgeted $5 million for Disneyland and it ends up costing him $17 million. So... Way, way, you know, more than triple the budget. But Walt doesn't care. There's a story I love from this time period. As costs are spiraling out of control, one of the contractors comes to Walt and says, hey, why don't we use cut glass instead of stained glass in this one part of the park? It's a little less fancy, but it's a minor detail and it's way less expensive. And Walt says, quote, look, the thing that is going to make Disneyland unique and different is the detail. If we lose the detail, we lose it all. And I think that's really powerful. If we lose the detail, we lose it all. In another incident, 
one Disneyland executive, Mark Davis, is presenting a new attraction. And he says, well, there are two versions. We can build an expensive version or an inexpensive version. And Walt gets out of his seat. He puts his hand on Mark's shoulder and says, quote, Mark, you and I did not worry about whether anything is cheap or expensive. We only worry if it's good. And that is one of the things you still see in Disneyland is this total commitment to the details. And um, Walt was right. It's what gives it its magic. So throughout this process, you know, like I said, giving it that magic, sticking to all these details makes the cost spiral out of control, but they're able to finish Disneyland just a year after beginning construction. Opening day is July 17th, 1955, and it's something of a fiasco. Counterfeit tickets were everywhere, so there are way more people than are supposed to be in the park. They sell 15,000 tickets, but it's estimated that 28,000 people entered the park that day, so nearly twice as many. And there are issues. Uh, the asphalt on Main Street gets so hot that people's shoes get stuck in it. Disney himself gets stopped by a security guard because he's accessing a part of the park where the guard has been told not to let anyone. And Walt tells him, I'm Walt Disney. And he says, <laughs> this is a great quote, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and uh, Walt ends up threatening to punch him in the face if he doesn't let him through. Uh, and so he lets him through. But in general, it goes well. Uh, people are awed by the park. They've never seen anything like it. There's a quote from the biography by Neil Gabler that I think expresses why people were immediately so enchanted by Disneyland. He wrote, quote, Most amusement parks, in fact, were like the Warner Brothers cartoons of the late 1940s. Noisy, chaotic, bombastic, subversive. One was made to feel that the social rules didn't apply there. That one was entirely free. Walt Disney, the purveyor of comfort, intended his park to provide just the opposite. Not freedom, but control and order. He later says that Disneyland provided, quote, an architecture of reassurance. One of the things that Walt does is build all the buildings not quite to scale. Most of them are about 80% as big as they should be. That varies a little bit. Some are a little bigger, some are a little smaller. But the effect is that everything seems just a little bit toy-like. Everything is friendly and approachable, not quite as big and intimidating as real life. And so you have this feeling of reassurance, of comfort, of, of friendliness and approachability, like I said, while at the same time having all these amazing things, having, you know, castles and futuristic spaceships and everything that comes with Disneyland. And it works. People are wowed. One reporter wrote that Disneyland was, quote, less an amusement park than a state of mind. The New York Times wrote, Mr. Disney has tastefully combined some of the pleasantest things of yesterday with the fantasy and dreams of tomorrow. On the evening of opening day, there are fireworks and everyone gathers around to, to see these fireworks over Disneyland. And uh, Walt's daughter, Diane, wrote, I've never seen a happier man than Walt Disney on that night. It's the culmination of a long journey for, for Disney and the birth of something that he took great pride and joy in and that, and that he loved, frankly. And one of the reasons that he loved it and he continued to love it is that you can't get perfection with anything. But it's especially true that you can't get perfection with cartoons and films in general, because once they're released, it's released. And you have this imperfect thing that's out in the world. Um, that's just, that's the nature of art. You're always gonna have to stop at some point, even though there are things that you would change. But with Disneyland, it's different. You can always keep tweaking it because tomorrow there are gonna be new guests who are gonna have a new experience for the first time. There's no release, you can just always change it. The next day is, is different. And so Walt loved that he could keep perfecting Disneyland uh, over time. And so he does, he practically lives at Disneyland and uh, he's always tweaking it, always looking at things to update, to change, to perfect. And so once again, a big gamble turns out great for Disney and his company. Remember, he blew his budget and spent $17 million on Disneyland. And the thing brings in $24.5 million in its first full year of operation. It's great. It's successful. It's successful financially. It's successful in terms of how people view it, in terms of how guests experience it. And while the park is going great, it's an awful time to be in animation at Disney Studios. Walt is ignoring the animation. And when he doesn't ignore it, he shows up and he's belligerent and dictatorial and dismissive. And so he starts disengaging completely from the cartoons 
and uh, severing his last ties, which is honestly probably a good thing considering how his behavior had changed towards animation. So by 1960, Disneyland accounted for a major part of the business. Um, in that year, movies accounted for 38% of revenue, television for 28%, Disneyland for 21%, and merchandise for 13%. Now, as you might imagine, was this going to finally be the one thing that Walt was just satisfied with? That he didn't feel the need to go on and continue to innovate? No, of course not. There was always going to need to be a next thing, a new thing. And so the obvious place to start was a new theme park. And that's because the vast majority of Disneyland's attendees were coming from the Western United States, mostly from California. And if you look at a population map of the US, the vast majority of Americans live east of the Mississippi, live in the Eastern United States. So there was a lot of untapped potential. Um, the idea for this park starts bubbling up in 1959, but it's in 1963 that Walt starts to really buckle down and focus on building a new park. And that's because in 1963, Walt does finally start to get a little bored with Disneyland. And that boredom stemmed from a couple of things. First of all, something had happened that he wasn't pleased with. Developers and speculators had bought up land around Disneyland and begun to put up hotels and restaurants and housing and other development, many of them with gaudy lights and architecture that Walt found ugly and unseemly. And it also drove up the price of land as Disney looked to expand the park and buy more land around it, it was costing him a lot. And so he was feeling hemmed in a little bit, like he couldn't do everything that he wanted to with the park. And as we know by now, Walt loved to control every element of the experience. And so it just pained him. It hurt his soul to see other people have this control over the experience of Disneyland. Like you might stay at a different hotel when you stayed at Disneyland, a hotel that Walt wouldn't approve of. You have to drive past all this ugly stuff in order to get there and, and see this unsightly stuff. Like he, he just hated that other things were impinging on the experience of Disneyland. And so he wanted to do Disneyland again, but this time he would buy up so much land that no one could solely the Disney experience with their gaudy hotels ever again. The other reason he's getting bored is that Disneyland only partially addressed his initial motivation for building it. Remember, it started with his toy trains, he wanted to create a little utopia, a life-size version of, of his toy train villages. And Disneyland was partially that, and that's why he loved it. But at the end of the day, it was a fake city, an amusement park. And what Walt wanted, as he thought about it more, was to create a real city where people lived and worked and played and had families like an actual city city. And so Walt comes up with this idea for a new, a new place, a new thing. And it would be two things. On the one hand, it would be a theme park like Disneyland. And on the other hand, it would be a futuristic utopian city of tomorrow. Again, a real city. And in that calculus, the, the city was the most important part to Walt. That was what was consuming his thought and his effort. You know, a, a new Disneyland, I mean, that had already been done. But the city, that had never been done. It would have a monorail and underground streets and a giant dome to keep out the rain. It'd have automatic trash disposal to avoid the noisy and annoying racket of garbage trucks picking up your trash in the morning. It would have skyscrapers and homes, schools and theaters. It would be a complete city and every single detail of it would be perfect and futuristic and designed by Walt Disney. And what's interesting to me is that so many great men have this exact dream that Walt Disney had. They want to build their own little utopia. So you can look at Alexander the Great laying out the city grid for Alexandria in Egypt, or Steve Jobs building his round spaceship campus toward the end of his life, or Peter the Great founding the city of St. Petersburg, built on what were new and futuristic principles to them back in the 1700s. Charlemagne had Aachen, the new capital of his Frankish empire that he built according to his very own plan. There are too many examples to point to all of them, but the point is, that this is a very common impulse. Dudes want to build their own cities, and Walt Disney is no different. So it's going to have a theme park, but the important thing to Walt is to build this city. And some of the plans are really cool. And so in order to be able to do this, they need land. They need lots and lots of land. And so um, Walt goes and hires a few OSS agents. The OSS was 
the World War II equivalent of the CIA. So he hires spies and puts them on this mission to go buy up a ton of land in central Florida that they could develop. And uh, it has to be a secret mission because he doesn't want other people to find out that he's buying up all this land because if they do, other people will start buying up the land, the price will go up, and he'll have a repeat of the misadventure he had at Disneyland where other people are developing property around it. And, and he wants to be able to do the whole thing himself. And not only that, you know, he wants to build his own city. So, uh, so he needs a lot of land and he needs it to be a secret that he's the one acquiring all of it. So they go on this mission and they acquire basically all of Orlando. They acquire so much land that it's twice the size of Manhattan. So more than enough room to build a, a full city. But unfortunately for Walt, his dreams were cut short. He died of lung cancer on December 15th, 1965 at the age of 65. He was a prolific smoker for his entire adult life. He was constantly smoking a cigarette and it eventually caught up to him. Uh, in fact, his health had been failing for a number of years. And when he went, his dream of a city of tomorrow went with him. It was just too ambitious, too magical, too visionary for anyone else to carry forward. It would have had to have been Walt. As one article I read put it, Walt was the last line of defense against reality. And unfortunately, once Walt died, that vision, that dream was replaced with mere reality. But to me, that exposes the legacy of Walt Disney. This is someone who created magic wherever he went. In many different domains, in many different fields, he was able to create that feeling that you were a part of something different and something special. We've already discussed how enormous the accomplishments are of Walt Disney and what an amazing impact he's had on the world. But it is tantalizing to think what might have come if he had lived for a decade or so longer. Now, could he have done it? Could he have pulled it off? Could he have built this futuristic city of tomorrow? Now, I don't know. It, it seems ambitious. Of course, it seems extremely ambitious. And yet everything that he had done before had seemed ambitious and uh, had seemed impossible. And yet, with Walt, it was made possible. I would have loved to have seen him try. And I hope that others will, will pick up the mantle. And um, that's something I'm going to talk about on a future episode. But um, I would love to see others be as ambitious as Walt when it comes to designing and building a new city of tomorrow. Okay, but uh, let's, let's get into the things that made Walt Disney great briefly. I'm going to save some of this for the End Notes episode, but I'll, I'll mention a few takeaways. You know, as I said, Walt was not the world's greatest animator. He wasn't the best director. He wasn't a great businessman or negotiator. He was a good salesman, but not an elite one, definitely not the greatest in the world. He wasn't a great manager. Again, he was a good public speaker, but not a great one, not the best public speaker in the world. So what did he have? What was he able to do? If he wasn't any of these things, what did he do? that enabled him to have this incredible impact? And the answer is vision. He had an absolute commitment to a vision that no one else could see and an insistence on making it real in every detail. Walt wasn't just articulating some vague thoughts on the future of animation and film and theme parks and all these other industries. He had a very detailed vision and was very exacting and making sure that those details were carried out how he saw that they should be. Remember, engineering, leadership, marketing, sales, like all these things are important. But the most indispensable thing is vision, is having that vision and being able to articulate it and insisting on it and never compromising. The second thing is optimism. Walt was relentlessly optimistic and so was his art. So much art these days whether it's film or television or theater or anything else, it tends to be gritty and dark and dystopian. And that's fine. There will always be a place for that. But people are always attracted to light and happiness and optimism. And I think it's much harder to pull off optimism uh, because you run the risk of being corny. But the upside is higher when you can pull it off. I wish more creators would realize that, that yes, it's easy to make a quick buck and have a little splash by being cynical, but to succeed on the highest level, you need to articulate a positive vision, which is what Walt Disney was able to do. Third, Walt was a little crazy. 
And you know what? He let himself get carried away by that craziness sometimes. And so the question arises, was that a good thing? Was it a good thing that he let himself get carried away by his craziness? Uh, put yourself in the situation of being an executive at the Disney company and you hear that Walt Disney is spending hours per day playing with toy trains. What would you have done? What would you have said? You know, uh, any reasonable person, I think, would have said, you know, Walt, you should really be focusing more on your multi-million dollar animation studio. You should probably give up this crazy hobby. And, um, but just imagine if Walt had said, you know what, you're right. I need to focus on, on what everyone says is important. You know, if he had done that, no Disneyland, no Disney World, none of the great in-person Disney experiences that have helped make the company what it is today. And so you have to be careful. I'm not sure you always want to embrace your crazy all the time and in every way. But when you're being creative, sometimes you do. Sometimes you need to let your passion carry you away, even when it doesn't make sense. The last thing I'll mention is Walt's love of magic, of childlike wonder. I've already espoused my theory that all the great ones are essentially addicts. And so the question arises, what was Walt Disney addicted to? And I think it was that feeling of showing someone something incredible and seeing the wonder in their eyes. As Walt himself said, I never chased the money. I always chased the magic. Okay, that's it for part two of Walt Disney. Until next time, thank you for tuning in to How to Take Over the World. 